Section 8 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 3. Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. Part 2. Of all the faculties of the human mind, it will, I presume, be admitted that reason stands at the summit. Only a few persons now dispute that animals possess some power of reasoning. Animals may constantly be seen to pause, deliberate, and resolve. It is a significant fact that the more the habits of any particular animal are studied by a naturalist, the more he attributes to reason, and the less to unlearnt instincts. Mr. L. H. Morgan's work on the American Beaver, 1868, offers a good illustration of this remark. I cannot help thinking, however, that he goes too far in underrating the power of instinct. In future chapters we shall see that some animals, extremely low in the scale, apparently display a certain amount of reason. No doubt it is often difficult to distinguish between the power of reason and that of instinct. For instance, Dr. Hayes, in his work on the open polar sea, repeatedly remarks that his dogs, instead of continuing to draw the sledges in a compact body, diverged and separated when they came to thin ice, so that their weight might be more evenly distributed. This was often the first warning which the travelers received that the ice was becoming thin and dangerous. Now did the dogs act thus from the experience of each individual, or from the example of the older and wiser dogs, or from an inherited habit, that is, from instinct? This instinct may possibly have arisen since the time long ago when dogs were first employed by the natives in drawing their sledges, or the Arctic wolves, the parent stock of the Eskimo dog, may have acquired an instinct impelling them not to attack their prey in a close pack when on thin ice. We can only judge by the circumstances under which actions were performed, whether they are due to instinct or to reason, or to the mere association of ideas. This latter principle, however, is intimately connected with reason. A curious case has been given by Professor Mobius of a pike, separated by a plate of glass from an adjoining aquarium stocked with fish, and who often dashed himself with such violence against the glass in trying to catch the other fishes that he was sometimes completely stunned. The pike went on thus for three months, but at last learnt caution and ceased to do so. The plate of glass was then removed, but the pike would not attack these particular fishes, though he would devour others which were afterwards introduced. So strongly was the idea of a violent shock associated in his feeble mind with the attempt on his former neighbors. If a savage, who had never seen a large plate-glass window, 
were to dash himself even once against it. He would for a long time afterwards associate a shock with a window frame, but very differently from the pike, he would probably reflect on the nature of the impediment and be cautious under analogous circumstances. Now with monkeys, as we shall presently see, a painful or merely a disagreeable impression from an action once performed is sometimes sufficient to prevent the animal from repeating it. If we attribute this difference between the monkey and the pike solely to the association of ideas being so much stronger and more persistent in the one than the other, though the pike often received much the more severe injury, can we maintain, in the case of man, that a similar difference implies the possession of a fundamentally different mind? Huzo relates that, whilst crossing a wide and arid plain in Texas, his two dogs suffered greatly from thirst, and that between thirty and forty times they rushed down the hollows to search for water. These hollows were not valleys, and there were no trees in them, or any other difference in the vegetation, and as they were absolutely dry, there could have been no smell of damp earth. The dogs behaved as if they knew that a dip in the ground offered them the best chance of finding water, and Huzo has often witnessed the same behavior in other animals. I have seen, as I dare say have others, that when a small object is thrown on the ground beyond the reach of one of the elephants in the zoological gardens, he blows through his trunk on the ground beyond the object, so that the current reflected on all sides may drive the object within his reach. Again, a well-known ethnologist, Mr. Westrop, informs me that he observed in Vienna a bear deliberately making with his paw a current in some water, which was close to the bars of his cage, so as to draw a piece of floating bread within his reach. These actions of the elephant and bear can hardly be attributed to instinct or inherited habit, as they would be of little use to an animal in a state of nature. Now, what is the difference between such actions when performed by an uncultivated man and by one of the higher animals? The savage and the dog have often found water at a low level, and the coincidence under such circumstances has become associated in their minds. A cultivated man would perhaps make some general proposition on the subject, but from all that we know of savages, it is extremely doubtful whether they would do so, and a dog certainly would not. But a savage, as well as a dog, would search in the same way, though frequently disappointed, and in both it seems to be equally an act of reason whether or not any general proposition on the subject is consciously placed before the mind. Professor Huxley has analyzed with admirable clearness the mental steps by which a man, as well as a dog, arrives at a conclusion in a case analogous to that given in my text. The same would apply to the elephant and the bear making currents in the air or water. 
the savage would certainly neither know nor care by what law the desired movements were effected yet his act would be guided by a rude process of reasoning as surely as would a philosopher in his longest chain of deductions there would no doubt be this difference between him and one of the higher animals that he would take notice of much slighter circumstances and conditions and would observe any connection between them after much less experience and this would be of paramount importance i kept a daily record of the actions of one of my infants and when he was about eleven months old and before he could speak a single word i was continually struck with the greater quickness with which all sorts of objects and sounds were associated together in his mind compared with that of the most intelligent dogs i ever knew but the higher animals differ in exactly the same way in this power of association from those low in the scale such as the pike as well as in that of drawing inferences and of observation the promptings of reason after very short experience are well shewn by the following actions of american monkeys which stand low in their order ringer a most careful observer states that when he first gave eggs to his monkeys in paraguay they smashed them and thus lost much of their contents afterwards they gently hit one end against some hard body and picked off the bits of shell with their fingers after cutting themselves only once with any sharp tool they would not touch it again or would handle it with the greatest caution lumps of sugar were often given them wrapped up in paper and ringer sometimes put a live wasp in the paper so that in hastily unfolding it they got stung after this had once happened they always first held the packet to their ears to detect any movement within mr belt in his most interesting work the naturalist in nicaragua eighteen seventy four page one nineteen likewise describes various actions of a tamed cebus which i think clearly shew that this animal possessed some reasoning power the following cases relate to dogs mr colquhoun winged two wild ducks which fell on the further side of a stream his retriever tried to bring over both at once but could not succeed she then though never before known to ruffle a feather deliberately killed one brought over the other and returned for the dead bird colonel hutchinson relates that two partridges were shot at once one being killed the other wounded the latter ran away and was caught by the retriever who on her return came across the dead bird Quote, she stopped evidently greatly puzzled and after one or two trials finding she could not take it up without permitting the escape of the winged bird she considered a moment then deliberately murdered it by giving it a severe crunch and afterwards brought away both together this was the only known instance of her ever having wilfully injured any game 
End quote. Here we have reason, though not quite perfect, for the retriever might have brought the wounded bird first and then returned for the dead one, as in the case of the two wild ducks. I give the above cases as resting on the evidence of two independent witnesses, and because in both instances the retrievers, after deliberation, broke through a habit which is inherited by them, that of not killing the game retrieved, and because they shew how strong their reasoning faculty must have been to overcome a fixed habit. I will conclude by quoting a remark by the illustrious Humboldt. Quote, the muleteers in South America say, I will not give you the mule whose step is easiest, but la mas rationale, the one that reasons best. End quote. And, as he adds, quote, this popular expression, dictated by long experience, combats the system of animated machines, better perhaps than all the arguments of speculative philosophy. End quote. Nevertheless, some writers even yet deny that the higher animals possess a trace of reason, and they endeavor to explain away, by what appears to be mere verbiage, I am glad to find that so acute a reasoner as Mr. Leslie Stephen, in speaking of the supposed impassable barrier between the minds of man and the lower animals, says, quote, The distinctions, indeed, which have been drawn seem to us to rest upon no better foundation than a great many other metaphysical distinctions. That is, the assumption that because you can give two things different names, they must therefore have different natures. It is difficult to understand how anybody who has ever kept a dog or seen an elephant can have any doubt as to an animal's power of performing the essential processes of reasoning. End quote. All such facts as those above given. It has, I think, now been shown that man and the higher animals, especially the primates, have some few instincts in common. All have the same senses, intuitions, and sensations, similar passions, affections, and emotions, even the more complex ones, such as jealousy, suspicion, emulation, gratitude, and magnanimity. They practice deceit and are revengeful. They are sometimes susceptible to ridicule and even have a sense of humor. They feel wonder and curiosity. They possess the same faculties of imitation, attention, deliberation, choice, memory, imagination, the association of ideas, and reason, though in very different degrees. The individuals of the same species graduate in intellect from absolute imbecility to high excellence. They are also liable to insanity, though far less often than in the case of man. And nevertheless, many authors have insisted that man is divided by an insuperable barrier from all the lower animals in his mental faculties. 
I formerly made a collection of above a score of such aphorisms, but they are almost worthless, as their wide difference and number prove the difficulty, if not the impossibility, of the attempt. It has been asserted that man alone is capable of progressive improvement, that he alone makes use of tools or fire, domesticates other animals, or possesses property, that no animal has the power of abstraction or of forming general concepts, is self-conscious and comprehends itself, that no animal employs language, that man alone has a sense of beauty, is liable to caprice, has the feeling of gratitude, mystery, etc., believes in God, or is endowed with a conscience. I will hazard a few remarks on the more important and interesting of these points. Archbishop Sumner formerly maintained that man alone is capable of progressive improvement, that he is capable of incomparably greater and more rapid improvement than is any other animal, admits of no dispute, and this is mainly due to his power of speaking and handing down his acquired knowledge. With animals, looking first to the individual, every one who has had any experience in setting traps knows that young animals can be caught much more easily than old ones, and they can be much more easily approached by an enemy. Even with respect to old animals, it is impossible to catch many in the same place and in the same kind of trap, or to destroy them by the same kind of poison. Yet it is improbable that all should have partaken of the poison, and impossible that all should have been caught in a trap. They must learn caution by seeing their brethren caught or poisoned. In North America, where the fur-bearing animals have long been pursued, they exhibit, according to the unanimous testimony of all observers, an almost incredible amount of sagacity, caution, and cunning. But trapping has been there so long carried on that inheritance may possibly have come into play. I have received several accounts that when telegraphs are first set up in any district, many birds kill themselves by flying against the wires, but that in the course of a very few years they learn to avoid this danger by seeing, as it would appear, their comrades killed. If we look to successive generations, or to the race, there is no doubt that birds and other animals gradually both acquire and lose caution in relation to man or other enemies, and this caution is certainly in chief part an inherited habit or instinct, but in part the result of individual experience. A good observer, Leroy, states that in districts where foxes are much hunted, the young, on first leaving their burrows, are incontestably much more wary than the old ones in districts where they are not much disturbed. Our domestic dogs are descended from wolves and jackals, and though they may not have gained in cunning, and may have lost in wariness and suspicion, yet they have progressed in certain moral qualities 
such as in affection, trustworthiness, temper, and probably in general intelligence. The common rat has conquered and beaten several other species throughout Europe, in parts of North America, New Zealand, and recently in Formosa, as well as on the mainland of China. Mr. Swinhoe, who describes these two latter cases, attributes the victory of the common rat over the large Mus coninga to its superior cunning, and this latter quality may probably be attributed to the habitual exercise of all its faculties in avoiding extirpation by man, as well as to nearly all the less cunning or weak-minded rats, having been continuously destroyed by him. It is, however, possible that the success of the common rat may be due to its having possessed greater cunning than its fellow species, before it became associated with man. To maintain, independently of any direct evidence, that no animal, during the course of ages, has progressed in intellect or other mental faculties, is to beg the question of the evolution of species. We have seen that, according to Lartet, existing mammals belonging to several orders have larger brains than their ancient tertiary prototypes. It has often been said that no animal uses any tool, but the chimpanzee in a state of nature cracks a native fruit, somewhat like a walnut, with a stone. Ringer easily taught an American monkey thus to break open hard palm nuts, and afterwards of its own accord it used stones to open other kinds of nuts as well as boxes. It thus also removed the soft rind of fruit that had a disagreeable flavor. Another monkey was taught to open the lid of a large box with a stick, and afterwards it used the stick as a lever to move heavy bodies. And I have myself seen a young orang put a stick into a crevice, slip his hand to the other end, and use it in the proper manner as a lever. The tamed elephants in India are well known to break off branches of trees and use them to drive away the flies and this same act has been observed in an elephant in a state of nature. I have seen a young orang, when she thought she was going to be whipped, cover and protect herself with a blanket of straw. In these several cases, stones and sticks were employed as implements, but they are likewise used as weapons. Brehm states, on the authority of the well-known traveler Schimper, that in Abyssinia, when the baboons belonging to one species, C. gelata, descend in troops from the mountains to plunder the fields, they sometimes encounter troops of another species, C. hamadryas, and then a fight ensues. The gelatas roll down great stones, which the hamadryas try to avoid, and then both species, making a great uproar, rush furiously against each other. Bram, when accompanying the Duke of Coburg-Gotha, 
aided in an attack with firearms on a troop of baboons in the pass of mensa in abyssinia the baboons in return rolled so many stones down the mountain some as large as a man's head that the attackers had to beat a hasty retreat and the pass was actually closed for a time against the caravan it deserves notice that these baboons thus acted in concert mr wallace on three occasions saw female orangs accompanied by their young quote, breaking off branches and the great spiny fruit of the durian tree with every appearance of rage causing such a shower of missiles as effectually kept us from approaching too near the tree end quote. As I have repeatedly seen, a chimpanzee will throw any object at hand at a person who offends him, and the before-mentioned baboon at the Cape of Good Hope prepared mud for the purpose. In the zoological gardens, a monkey, which had weak teeth, used to break open nuts with a stone, and I was assured by the keepers that after using the stone he hid it in the straw and would not let any other monkey touch it. Here, then, we have the idea of property. But this idea is common to every dog with a bone, and to most or all birds with their nests. The Duke of Argyle remarks that the fashioning of an implement for a special purpose is absolutely peculiar to man, and he considers that this forms an immeasurable gulf between him and the brutes. This is no doubt a very important distinction, but there appears to me much truth in Sir J. Lubbock's suggestion that when primeval man first used flint stones for any purpose, he would have accidentally splintered them and would then have used the sharp fragments. From this step it would be a small one to break the flints on purpose and not a very wide step to fashion them rudely. This latter advance, however, may have taken long ages, if we may judge by the immense interval of time which elapsed before the men of the Neolithic period took to grinding and polishing their stone tools. In breaking the flints, as Sir J. Lubbock likewise remarks, sparks would have been emitted, and in grinding them heat would have been evolved. Thus, the two usual methods of, quote, obtaining fire may have originated, end quote. The nature of fire would have been known in the many volcanic regions, where lava occasionally flows through forests. The anthropomorphous apes, guided probably by instinct, build for themselves temporary platforms, but as many instincts are largely controlled by reason, a simpler one, such as this of building a platform, might readily pass into a voluntary and conscious act. The orang is known to cover itself at night with the leaves of the pandanus, and Brehm states that one of his baboons used to protect itself from the heat of the sun by throwing a straw mat over its head. In these several habits, we probably see the first steps towards some of the simpler arts, such as rude architecture and dress, 
as they arose amongst the early progenitors of man. Abstraction, general conceptions, self-consciousness, mental individuality. It would be very difficult for anyone with even much more knowledge than I possess to determine how far animals exhibit any traces of these high mental powers. This difficulty arises from the impossibility of judging what passes through the mind of an animal, and again the fact that writers differ to a great extent in the meaning which they attribute to the above terms causes a further difficulty. If one may judge from various articles which have been published lately, the greatest stress seems to be laid on the supposed entire absence in animals of the power of abstraction or of forming general concepts. But when a dog sees another dog at a distance, it is often clear that he perceives that it is a dog in the abstract, for when he gets nearer his whole manner suddenly changes, if the other dog be a friend. A recent writer remarks that in all such cases it is a pure assumption to assert that the mental act is not essentially of the same nature in the animal as in man. If either refers what he perceives with his senses to a mental concept, then so do both. When I say to my terrier, in an eager voice, and I have made the trial many times, Hi, hi, where is it? She at once takes it as a sign that something is to be hunted, and generally first looks quickly all around, and then rushes into the nearest thicket to scent for any game, but finding nothing, she looks up into any neighboring tree for a squirrel. Now, do not these actions clearly issue that she had in her mind a general idea or concept that some animal is to be discovered and hunted? It may be freely admitted that no animal is self-conscious, if by this term it is implied that he reflects on such points as whence he comes or whither he will go, or what is life and death, and so forth. But how can we feel sure that an old dog with an excellent memory and some power of imagination, as shewn by his dreams, never reflects on his past pleasures or pains in the chase? And this would be a form of self-consciousness. On the other hand, as Buckner has remarked, how little can the hard-worked wife of a degraded Australian savage, who uses very few abstract words and cannot count above four, exert her self-consciousness or reflect on the nature of her own existence? It is generally admitted that the higher animals possess memory, attention, association, and even some imagination and reason. If these powers, which differ much in different animals, are capable of improvement, there seems no great improbability in more complex faculties 
such as the higher forms of abstraction and self-consciousness, etc., having been evolved through the development and combination of the simpler ones. It has been urged against the views here maintained that it is impossible to say at what point in the ascending scale animals become capable of abstraction, etc. But who can say at what age this occurs in our young children? We see, at least, that such powers are developed in children by imperceptible degrees. That animals retain their mental individuality is unquestionable. When my voice awakened a train of old associations in the mind of the before-mentioned dog, he must have retained his mental individuality, although every atom of his brain had probably undergone change more than once during the interval of five years. This dog might have brought forward the argument lately advanced to crush all evolutionists, and said, quote, I abide amid all mental moods and all material changes. The teaching that atoms leave their impressions as legacies to other atoms falling into the places they have vacated is contradictory of the utterance of consciousness and is therefore false, but it is the teaching necessitated by evolutionism. Consequently, the hypothesis is a false one. Language This faculty has justly been considered as one of the chief distinctions between man and the lower animals. But man, as a highly competent judge, Archbishop Watley remarks, Quote, is not the only animal that can make use of language to express what is passing in his mind, and can understand, more or less, what is so expressed by another. End quote. In Paraguay, the Cebus Azare, when excited, utters at least six distinct sounds which excite in other monkeys similar emotions. The movements of the features and gestures of monkeys are understood by us, and they partly understand ours, as Ringer and others declare. It is a more remarkable fact that the dog, since being domesticated, has learnt to bark in at least four or five distinct tones. Although barking is a new art, no doubt the wild parent species of the dog express their feelings by cries of various kinds. With the domesticated dog, we have the bark of eagerness, as in the chase, that of anger, as well as growling, the yelp or howl of despair, as when shut up, the baying at night, the bark of joy, as when starting on a walk with his master, and the very distinct one of demand or supplication as when wishing for a door or window to be opened. According to Huzo, who paid particular attention to the subject, the domestic fowl utters at least a dozen significant sounds. End of Section 8 
Recording by Bill Mosley, Frelsberg, Texas, USA.